0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher
1: education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr.
0: Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Stephen Healy to our show. Dr. Healy is the provost at Cambridge College in Boston. Hi, Steve. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today.
1: Dave, delighted to join you. Uh, Let's have a good conversation, see what happens.
0: Great. Well, first, tell me about Cambridge College and why students select your institution.
1: Sure. Cambridge College, uh, you know, the name Cambridge comes from uh, its former location over in Cambridge, Mass. It was on Massachusetts Avenue. It sold a facility there and moved over to its current location In Charlestown, part of Boston, it also has locations in Puerto Rico and uh, Lawrence, Massachusetts, and Springfield, Massachusetts. So uh, it is an adult-serving institution uh, specializing in business, education, counseling, and undergraduate programs. Also, the the college, uh, right at the time of COVID, purchased the New England College for Business, NECB, with a storied history of serving the finance and banking industry in Boston. So that's asynchronously delivered. You know, uh, the the average student here is mid-30s, a mother, woman of color, and joined this college because the college goes out of its way to meet their needs as a matter of instruction as a matter of delivery, pedagogy, and support. So it's really a remarkable institution with a a great history of providing access to underserved communities, women of color especially, but others who have been excluded. Uh, This college opens access to and delivers high
0: quality programs to. Oh, good. Well, what's new at the college?
1: Well, let's see, you you know, we have adjusted to COVID. I just mentioned, you know, the omnipresent COVID. I I guess there's another variant circulating. I don't know whether you've seen that. Uh, Like each of these variants, uh, you know, has ominous, (laughs) maybe ominous characteristics. The college shifted our delivery model at student request to that situation, so in addition to the asynchronous content and programs that we deliver, we also primarily deliver our on-ground uh, programs, meaning synchronous, on-time, scheduled, but they're delivered by technology. They're delivered in, in a Zoom format and in other technologies to address student needs. I mean, it, it, both both here... Uh, in Boston and our, our locations, and and I failed to mention our lo- location in uh, Southern California, but our students' lives uh, are busy. Uh, that that group of, you know, mothers and fathers in their thirties, uh, and I, I I have the most temperature here of the Charlestown. You could imagine driving around at five o'clock trying to get to campus at six o'clock. I mean, even in COVID, the traffic here is pretty wild. So that really just helped a lot. So that's a major thing, and we're continuing to do that. We're also developing programs, um, quickly taking our existing on-ground content programs. And in addition to business and finance, which NSCB uh, really s- specializes in, taking our other programs to asynchronous delivery. That would be criminal justice and psychology And uh, and eventually here, uh, and I say eventually, you know, psychology or or education and maybe counseling. There's some bridges to cross to do those, but uh, we intend to do that. We're also in the midst of a project to take our curriculum and offer it in shorter term formats, Mm. you know, micro credentials with stackable uh, mini credentials and badges and micro work. Uh, and to try to deliver it in various formats just to be ready for student needs and interests just
0: now, you know that's that's a great, great idea. You know, people have been kind of kicking around that micro credentials for a while. And uh, you know, business looks at universities and colleges like, "Hey, can't you do that? well, that's that's a hard thing to do internally. I mean, it's a great idea. so 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 that's a new launch for you guys, or are you already starting to do those type of programs?
1: We have some of them. Uh, but we really want to get aggressive with it. We have some funds uh, from a funding source uh, to make a go at it. And, uh, you know, over the next couple of years, we will be pushing forward quickly uh, into those arenas. And, of course, you know, we also want to use it as as a means of furthering our enrollment in our degree programs because the need for degrees, uh, whatever businesses might th- think or s- s- some very famous people might say the need for credentials and degrees <laughs> hasn't gone down and it would and I don't wish for it but it would only take a a reasonably deep recession to prove that at least I believe so we're in the business here to serve student needs and interests and those needs and interests I think will go across the spectrum and they're different for individual students some do need a quick tune-up with a micro Micro credential. You know, it might be as simple as running a pivot table on Excel. They may never have done that. Or they may be far along in business and need a refresh on accounting, uh, you know, gap and st- stuff like that. Or they may be well along in a counseling profession, but need support to understand how to run your own business because it wasn't taught as part of the curriculum, but it's part of the need. So I see that happening. Uh, here and elsewhere, <clears throat> and not only for adults, but especially for adults. You know this this group we serve most directly.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, let's switch subjects. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you. So, tell me about the path that led you to become the provost there at your college.
1: Sure. Well, I had been provost before at the University of Bridgeport. Had also served for a year in an on an interim basis as president. But as I've said to the community there, interim marks time. It doesn't limit passion or it doesn't limit authority. You know, so that was that. But how did I get to those points there? Uh, You know, after graduate school, and I have a degree in religious studies or theology and ethics in particular, and I had been looking for a job and found one at the University of Bridgeport, Uh, to found a program in world religions, uh, a non-doctrine-based, open, secular inquiry into the way religions work in time and space, which is my uh, expertise. Then when I got there, you know, the teaching opportunities for a new program were a bit less, and uh, it was a dean there who thought I would be good uh, managing general education. So, uh, I was young and naive, and so I immediately said yes to doing that, uh, not fully realizing that it was like the major political economy, if you want to put it that way, of the university. You know, people's lives depended on their teaching loads and stuff like that. So it was a really good um, introduction to faculty base, but still administration work. Dealing with faculty needs and interests, bringing it to an intersection with student needs and interests, and overall support of the university's kind of plan and vision. And so I loved that work. I discovered that um, all, all of the training that I had was the soft skills, the text analysis, the uh, sense of structure and purpose, the way those are embedded one and the other, was really You know, a great preparation for that. And then I got going on it and got involved in a lot of other administration work. The the provost in, Larry Connor, still a mentor of mine, tapped me when I was really quite young and new to the whole thing to chair the university's uh, self-study for its uh, regional accreditation I look back on it now. i I didn't at the time realize the magnitude of that. <laughs> but it went off swimmingly well. And you know, uh, r- literally hundreds of people join in and support that. Ten years later, I did another one, same place. And by then we we're in a much better place as an institution, but a lot of people collaborating. And then in and through that that time period, I served and gained tenure. Uh, and then joined the administration fully and in an earnest in the provost office, working on evaluation. Uh, then shifted over to a dean role in School of Arts and Sciences. Uh, then associate provost. Then provost. As provost, worked with the president there, Laura Trombley, uh, to execute design. Really, I, I think I designed and and then together executed a a, a complete college structure changed. So we took our schools and colleges and shifted them into a structure that was more purpose-filled and focused towards certain futures. And, it, you know, it wasn't easy uh, moving that many things around. It uh, inflicts one vision on a lot of people. Uh, of course, they were involved in it, but it was difficult. But we pushed through and did that. And then um, I became president uh, after uh, Laura needed to leave for family reasons, and uh, the university had fallen an, into a period of real distress uh, related to the loss of about a thousand international graduate mm. students, and so I was working with the trustees, and we found a way to sustain the university under its own name with its own accreditation, and then it was time for me to find a new adventure. I knew it in my heart. And so it was no hurt feelings at all. It was just time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in some ways it had been time before, but I, my conscience really obliged me to, to stay. And I'm glad I did because I learned so much, uh, gained so much. And then yeah, it was really a couple months later, I I ended up at Cambridge college and joined what I think is like a, a world class community. That's, that's less known, uh, you know, it's Foundations to 1971. Meaningful date for me, not my birthday, but somebody I love's her birthday that year. And, uh, but the college is really amazing and I'm delighted to be here and working with the president who's great, Deborah Jackson. She's so well-known in the state. She has such a great vision for adult education. The deans here are wonderful, high quality professionals. The faculty, core faculty, and part-time faculty, as we call full and part-time faculty, are really amazing. Uh, you know, deans and provosts, um, more really than presidents, get to work directly with faculty. It's my first love, being a faculty member, teaching, learning, working to serve students' needs and interests. And the group here is really off the charts amazing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's wonderful when you have a really good team. Uh, you know, and when you don't, it's not wonderful. So I'm 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 very happy for you that you have a you have a good group. How well, is it? You know, it sounds it it, it sounds that. like uh, oh I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, I sometimes say that, that deans and provosts are aren't stars, but they're astronom, astronomers that work with stars. And it's the faculty that makes a go of every initiative we might have. And a lot of the good ideas come from them.
0: Yeah, good point. So it sounds like you've been an academic leader for quite some time then over the years. and and, of course, different positions too. so how is how has your leadership style evolved from from those beginning days to today?
1: yeah, i i I think in a way, there's a, a good bit of continuation of a basic approach I have, which is making personal relationships, of course, that are professional. But, but working with people and enjoying people. And just as a habit I have personally myself, um, n- not getting in the front of the line. Uh, this work, I mean, anybody who's considering uh, becoming a dean or a provost or a higher education leader, I would say if, if they need to be in the limelight this is probably not the role for them. I mean, there there are exceptions to everything, I would say, but but those roles are to put other people in the limelight, faculty first, all the time because that's that's the group that they're developing everything of value uh, at, at a college or university. Uh, and then students, they're not second because they're second, but you can't offer students anything unless you have something. And what they need has got to be paramount in the mind of the faculty and the and the deans and provost. It's what it's all about. And so my personality lends itself to that. I, I want other people to succeed, and I don't feel diminished by the great light getting shined on somebody else. And that's been continuous. Um, Some of the things that may have changed is uh, both initially at, at University of Bridgeport, each successive title you take, and I guess I'd also say if anybody's listening that would consider entering administration work, I mean, imposter syndrome is true of everybody. It's been, I believe. Uh, now, I, I can't make my experience universal, but certainly true for me, and not just true once, but each each pass around the sun and a new title uh, has been making decisions that almost feel like somebody else should be making them. I mean, that the, the topics that come in are, of course, known, uh, but there's a foreignness to it because you've never really done it before. I mean, it's like, kundra's uh, unbearable lightness of being it'd be great if you did this before then you could do it again with some wisdom but you have to do it yourself and the heaviness of it yourself alone sometimes so so there's been growth with that uh for me and um my assertiveness as an administrator um it is i'd say similarly scaled uh and when i assert stuff I always uh, do it on the basis of as much conversation and consensus as I can muster. But I do think an in, in administration work is, there are times when strategy is defined, when decisions are made at the end of a conversation and the consensus is good, but it's not exhaustive. Right? Administration work, if somebody says, we're doing it and we're doing it now, And 20% of the people are going to be a bit irritated by it. And you have to bank on their professionalism, that they had a stake in the conversation. They weren't excluded from that, but they didn't get the result they wanted. And it's difficult every time one does it. uh, And I've done it a number of times. And I'm taking some steps where I am now to do some of that work. And I feel really good about it. Uh, so that's continuous, but there's some growth there and just my sense of how to do this stuff.
0: Mm. Well, what's been some of the biggest lessons you have learned as an academic leader? Um, y- you know, uh, deepen my sense
1: of the need for humility. The discipline I have, uh, religious studies, Uh, fills one with caution as a matter of inquiry. You know, you may look at uh, a text statement from 6th century, uh, you know, India, and feel you understand what it means. Uh, But until you do the appropriate work with language and culture and history and circumstance, uh, you don't know. Uh, You have a sense of it, but the sense of it may be wrong. For all those reasons, including failures or limited uh, way translations work. And then when you enrich your knowledge and you deepen the context and you go into it um, more deeply, especially, uh, I guess, if it's outside of one's own personal sensibilities, that, that always remains outside and always remains a matter of caution. So I think that in administration work, um, knowing how to balance that kind of humility and cautionary approach to subjects with decisiveness, I and mean, that's hard. I mean, that's um, that's the balancing point there. Uh, not being wishy-washy. You know, no, no, no one. Wants a leader that can't make up their mind. Um, they don't want that. They may not want the mind that you make up either, but they don't want maybe this, maybe that. They want some uh, decisiveness there. So um I, I'm a little drifting from your question. I'm not I'm not even sure, frankly, I remember it, but that's some stuff came to mind there.
0: It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna change uh subjects again. Let's let's talk about the future. So, what do you think are the Major challenges that colleges and and really even your college is going to face over the next five years.
1: yeah, sure. Well, I think the demographic pinches on everybody, you know, the declining number of uh, uh, the traditional age student uh, and our our Cambridge College is an adult serving institution. so it 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 is not directly impacted by that, but because, other institutions are, and most especially in the Northeast, and then if you track down toward the Southwest, it becomes less of an impact on that trajectory. But here it's profound. Um, And because it's profound for traditional age-serving institutions, they're all broadening their market share and going after the adult-serving degree completion market and the adult-serving market. And then... Um, you know, the major online purveyors that can offer at such scale on such economies of scale that they're driving the price down just when inflation is driving costs up. Mm-hmm. And right in the context when the value of education, which is a hideous virus in this country that really goes back 20 years, and I, I, I frequently say you know, it began as an attack on K-12 education, and and higher educators uh, participated in it. We would say, you know, pulling our lapels or pulling um, whatever element of, you know, expressing our umbrage, that they would only bring us better students. Well, that was wrong. Uh, They were bringing us quality students. We were participating in it because it was a deflection from criticizing ourselves. But now... The criticism has started to um, absorb higher education as well. And so there's this narrative about that higher education lacks value. It's wrong. Uh, it's one of the highest values. And people's lives are at stake. Society's uh, well-being is at stake. I mean, what we do costs a lot of money. There's no getting around it. And the charges that we have to have have to be equal to it, or you're running a you know, the business dimension of the academics fails. You can't have that either. So the balance point is to offer high quality programs at a price that your audience can afford and then encourage societal and governmental support. And as a totality, that's what we got to do. But I am concerned um, for really its culture on the whole. There's such um, a dispute in the country about our own future. It used to be, and I don't want to sound too apocalyptic here, but that there were some things that were taken for granted, that we were working together, whatever our partisan differences, we were working toward a common outcome, and that education was taken for granted as a part of that project, and and there was multi-party support of, of that project. It's really reduced a lot. Um, and there's a lot of factors, and I don't I don't pretend to know them all, but that's that's also in the air of the stuff that we're addressing. And I know of no other way to address it than to address it in our role as public intellectuals, and to keep showing and demonstrating the value of what we do, and not for ourselves, although our livelihoods are dependent upon it, but it's for other people. That's the main. V- the main point of education—it's not for us; it's for the people that are learning from us—and it's a big sequence, you know, going back to the first time somebody educated someone else.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I really agree with you, Steve. I, I one of my frustrations um, I noticed, and and I continue to notice, especially with with the giant pushes for from industry for uh, micro credentials—they they want workforce ready you know, students coming right to them. And that's a great idea. And 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 I really support that. But I also support producing quality citizens. And I think sometimes educators, that's what we do. We we produce quality citizens. And if you only worry about the comp- the, the skill competencies, you're going to miss out on some of those things. And I think, I think in the long run, people are going to look back going, you know, it's not an either or we should do both. Uh, and I'm hoping I'm hoping everybody continues down that road, like what you guys are doing.
1: So, so agree with that. Uh, I mean, in my time in higher education, uh, there there are two things that have been major initiatives that have really uh, changed the landscape. And the first, first I would mention is assessment. It it, be, it became a topic. Uh, it was a little bit resisted or a good bit resisted, you know, depending on which chair you sat in. Uh, and then we all kind of got with it, uh, and it it really improved what we do. Uh, it's not a complete pro- completed project, but it's there as something we want to keep doing. And the next one I would mention on a scale with that is focus on DEIB, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And that is sweeping, and it should have swept a long time ago. So we're a bit behind on it but it's transforming education itself. And, it, and and here at Cambridge College, we embed that right in general education. We're gonna deepen the embedding of that in general education. Uh, the, the, the president, uh, Deborah Jackson, many years before I arrived on the scene, created RestG initiative, R- Racial Equity Social Justice Initiative. And this is to study the college's curriculum, its use of vendors, uh, its history, its circumstance from a racial equity uh, uh, and social justice lens. And there's such a powerful history of it here that we have a lot of stuff to put forward, uh, but our transformative work in general education is, is recognizing that we have a lot of room to go to. Um, we may be a bit farther ahead uh, we want to encourage other institutions to join us and get going with it, and that'll change the way general education is done. It's civic mindedness, it's social awareness, it's it's becoming self-reflective. Um, in the essence of learning includes uh, self-awareness, the role of one's own sensibilities and perceptions and biases uh, that are built in to ourself through experience, and they can be examined and altered over time. And that's how we teach people. And that's how we learn from other people. And we're trying to do it here.
0: Yeah. Well, if we look to the future, what do you think opportunities will look like then for higher ed institutions?
1: I think- I, I I think it's a moment of tremendous opportunity. I mean, I guess it's the uh, Greek word crisis, you know, which which combines a uh, threat and opportunity. The Chinese character uh, uh, is quite similar on that. So yeah, it's I think it's an ominous time for higher education. It's got a threatening characteristic to it. Uh, probably accepting, you know, the the really abundantly wealthy. Uh, Deeply wealthy institutions that have permanence because of that, and they should, and we should be glad they have it. Uh, a lot of the rest of us are, are in a period of constant need to refresh and reinvent and find new student interests and call them markets and find new ways of appealing to them. And I think for those of us in that, uh, it's a time to do that, and there's no bigger opportunity than that. Uh, on my campus and tomorrow, like probably most campuses around the country, you know we're we're having a session and planning day on artificial intelligence. We've all seen what chat GPT can do. I, the, the other night, uh, because I have theology training, I was talking with chat GPT about original sin and it was amazingly sophisticated in its answers. Uh, and at a certain point, it was reflecting uh an a, a way of addressing the issue that i would characterize as liberal you know that um religious things are are above the facts and therefore they need to be separated and treated as opinion you know it's a very powerful way of thinking about religion and many of us think that way but it's historically situated way of thinking about it and i pointed that out to chat gpt and then it gave me a long lecture on the Middle Ages and how <laughs> you know you know it seemed to it seemed to know all that, but it didn't include it in its original answer uh and then I said to it, well, why don't you stipulate uh do you know how to stipulate a maxim and then talk as if the maxim is true and then it gave me a long lecture on how you stipulate something so I said, stipulate that original sin. Mm-hmm. Is um, a true definition of how life works. and then it really adjusted to all that on the fly. So, yeah, in higher education, this is this is like I'm 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 going on too deeply here, but AI, uh, the role of technology, is, is super clear to me. And and on this college, we're taking steps to develop technology and technology related programs, and then because you know the population is aging. Uh, there's a lot of people like you and me around, and 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 fewer younger people. Uh, the healthcare and health sciences needs are really really big as well. That's another area to uh, grow and develop programs, uh, and really would require degrees with credentials and licenses and stuff like that. So those are some big areas for future development for here and other places.
0: Well, how do you see online education? Uh, at that platform evolving for both faculty and students in the future? Um, well, Same thing? And,
1: and by online, uh, we're, we're meaning asynchronous online and, and I see, you know, the, the, the ongoing use of high quality technologies to emulate the best environments for laboratories, for learn, teaching, learning, um, I can imagine that they already exist, but the widespread use of artificial intelligence uh, to do assessment and grading, that may seem a bit alarming to people, and and I'm not sure myself that I'm all in on that. Uh, I do eventually want instructors' human eyeballs sitting on what before it goes to students, but there are powerful technologies uh, being developed that facilitate that. Uh, the the uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, gamification. I mean, these sorts of things uh, delivered in an asynchronous environment can so enrich the learning field uh, that, that what we're doing now um well, it's what we're doing now, and it has high value. But we're going to improve on it through those things. and And I tend to be an optimist uh, that keeps my my second eye on worrisome things that that develop as a result of this stuff as well.
0: Well, you know, it, it sure sounds like your campus. I would I would call your students non traditional students, and they since they're in their thirties. Yeah. the majority of them
1: it's uh, right
0: and, and when I talk to other college presidents sometimes or, or provosts or deans and I'll use the word non-traditional and it starts making to me I start realizing that's now turning into traditional I mean now and more a lot but there's still a lot of campuses that that don't have you know an abundance of non-traditional students so do you have any advice what can those campuses do to meet the needs of that specific student population
1: Yeah, well, one of the things I would say right out of the gate, and this is in response to how you were putting the non-traditional and then then they become traditional, is to find a language that doesn't use a non at the beginning of it. These are, I would say, I don't know whether it's adult learners, which is a term I tend to use, but that means addressing them not for what they're not, but for what they are. Uh, and, and, and by the way, I use the term non-traditional too. And I, I don't mean to be, be, you know, be chasing after Dave here. No,
0: that's actually, ex- you know what, that's an excellent point. Cause until you said that, that, that makes so much sense. That's just a term that I've heard for so many years of my career. So yes, that's well, a good point, Steve.
1: We all, we all, we all use it yeah. and we do know what we're talking about. We're talking about students that are outside the 18 to 22 or the graduate school follow on bracket that have done some education, they need to complete it or they started a family first and now they're coming back. So that's what we're talking about. Everybody knows that. Uh, but to find a a way of addressing them and that as a primary constituency and not as an add on and not as a group that gets the leftover part of the curriculum, <laughs> you know, uh, and 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 I don't want to be too down on institutions that are looking to grow revenue sources. There's nothing wrong with that, but as we look at educational quality, it should not be that the day bracket eighteen to twenty two bracket gets, you know, all the best stuff, and then the leftovers go to the adult evening bracket or the weekend bracket. I, I would like to see it more divided because. That's um, uh, most frontally addressing the students that are being served by the mission of whatever college or university or school you're dealing with. So that's an important thing, I I think. Uh, Also, and this is an obvious one, um, listen to your students. I mean, adults especially know what they want. They know what they need, and they know what works, and they know what doesn't. Uh, It must have been 15 years ago I first did uh, teaching in what at the University of Bridgeport was called the IDEAL program, Innovative Degree Excellence for Adult Learners, IDEAL program. It met in the evening, and I had been, um, I'll say humbly, you know, a decorated teacher in the undergraduate realm. I was Distinguished Teacher of the Year. So I felt good as a teacher, and I felt I could do a pretty good job with it. And I bring in my standard stuff to the adult group, uh, and it was it was not an outright failure. I don't want to be too harsh on myself, but it was not the success it was in the day division. They they were adult learners. They they had a lot more experience. They had a lot more stuff to bring in to enrich each other's knowledge. And so, I had always used uh, and and any time I teach, still use a decentered pedagogy. I want um, students at the center, not, not myself, but the adult learners took it to another dimension. It was in a way a lot easier. I I have to say, I mean, adults are so smart and they're so motivated, uh, and they do the assignments, um, without a lot of chasing after them. At least that's been my experience. So if, if I were out there as a provost or Dean thinking about an adult market, I would be feeling really good about that opportunity because it's an amazing group of learners, uh, and this isn't to put the eighteen to twenty-two, you know, the the so so so-called uh, traditional age down. I don't mean it that way, but it's a matter of cognitive and uh, development, brain development, attention spans do get longer. Uh, the uh, learning apparatus is enriched by experience, so so that's all in there, and and you deal with the group you're dealing with in a way that's appropriate for them and their their needs. So those are, I think, obvious, but I would just throw those out there for consideration. Yeah, good point.
0: Um, Well, right now, it seems like mental health is becoming a hot topic on campuses. It wasn't 10 years ago, for sure. So uh, what can campuses do to tackle this problem for both students and faculty and staff?
1: Yeah, well, uh, one of the things you mentioned there is is be open about it uh be sensitive to it make it an item of conversation uh assess uh the readiness of of the college at university or school to to either provide services or to refer to outside providers I would say to engage student governance uh, to think hard with the faculty uh, at the institution and, and if if one happens as I am to be a, at a place that has a, a counseling faculty to make sure that their expertise is, is taken under advisement. They, they won't want to be the counselors for sure, because that's a very different uh, thing, but they will know the um, basic steps that you would take to either build new resources or build upon existing ones. And, and they would, they would help, uh, you know, a dean or a provost or a senior administration to get its mind around what's at stake, and uh, I do think myself, Dave, that that it's become a topic and a larger topic because it is a higher-level crisis, and not just because we've become more sensitive to it. I, I mean, I think I think uh, that that there's a almost post-traumatic stress reaction to the COVID period, to our isolation, uh, and all those uh, normal enough fears and uh, uh, things of that sort, stressors that are related to social exchange, have intensified. And the online environments, for all their wonders, can also be, the non-physical part of it can be very risky. Uh, You know, the mind uh, is... Uh, our, our essence, uh, but it can be an enemy of itself, and, and and I think physical expression, like getting out and going to class, uh, or getting out, and going to grocery store, if if you're going to, or getting out and going to synagogue or church or song, whatever it might be, or as I, you know, my religion, going to baseball or football games, you know, and with people, uh, because Aristotle. I think was right. We're social animals. So, so this is a bit of a, a winding dialogue here with you or monologue, sorry, uh, on, on what's going on with, with uh, counseling needs, but that's a piece of it that I wanted to say too.
0: Okay. Well, here's a fine question. If you had any extra budget money right now with no strings attached, you get to do whatever you want to with it. How would you spend it?
1: well I, it would be like you know
0: pr- probably the first
1: time in graduate school i i calculated that i had a 300 dollar tax return coming and i spent it you know all 2100 dollars of it by the 10 things i wanted for 200 dollars a piece and i'm sure if i had you know a couple million dollars i would spend it a bunch of different ways, and I would spend $50 million until that's done, because I would spend it on faculty development and enrichment. I would uh, I would spend it on growing internships and, and new possibilities for students, student travel, student enrichment, I would spend it to grow programs in healthcare, health sciences where I am because we' we have some really amazing stuff, but we want to develop more. I would grow it in technology and technology related programs with really sophisticated, uh, you know, laboratory emulation environments and stuff like that. I would, I would spend it on, um, you know, release time. For to encourage really amazing thoughts about curriculum and curriculum development. I would add money to the diversification budget. We, we, Even though Cambridge College, I think, is a leader in its hiring of BIPOC individuals, why not double down on it and get even better? Um, and why not teach the entire college what this means? Uh, this isn't a political statement. This isn't... Um, some kind of uh, left leaning or right. this isn't that this is about enriching our humanity and enriching the quality of our personnel and our our commitment to each other and and it takes well we're educators it never surprises us when we learn we have to learn something uh, if if we felt that there was a group, group of people that didn't need to learn something that would be surprising uh, and it would be discouraging in a way. <laughs> we call the need to learn a market. And um, there's a big market on the need to learn. And then some of us that feel like we've been learning for 30, 40, 50 years have right now this last few years discovered there's a lot we still need to learn. Yeah. Uh, and it's almost um, not shame inducing because we were acting in good faith. But it's surprising that, hey, we we didn't learn that as quickly as we should have. So let's learn it now. And whether this is artificial intelligence, DEIB, or some other new thing, uh, let's get learning on it right now.
0: That's a great point. Well, here's my last question. Um, Do you have any favorite books that you would recommend to other academic leaders?
1: Favorite books for academic leaders? You know, I tend not to read trade stock academic leader types books. I tend to read in my field. um, Mm. And and uh, m- maybe I should take listen to some of your earlier um, uh, t- tapes and take some advice from people like that. But um, the things I read are in my discipline, and I, and I, if people don't do that, I encourage that. I mean, at night, uh, what's on my what's on my um, you know nightstand that I read uh, tends to be on topics of my interest. Uh, right now. And I've been doing some work on white Christian nationalism and stuff like that. uh, And if that's a topic people are interested in, they can start up with Google and just some basic stuff. I would encourage it. But staying in tune with uh, the reason we came into the, uh, the, the academy is, I think, really important. And I've never let it go, and I never will uh, and I sometimes have um, too little time uh, to do substantial scholarly work. That those days, or they may come back. You know, if I enter into a phase like I think you've entered into, I can hit that saddle again, and I would look forward to it. But I want to keep it a bit refreshed each each time I get a get a
0: chance to. Yeah, that's 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 a great way to end our end our conversation today. So thanks so much for being on our show. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. It was very enlightening. And to say the least, uh, I look forward to maybe getting back with you down the road and we can have another conversation.
1: I can't wait. Dave, thanks so much. These were great questions. A lot of fun chatting with you.
0: Thank you. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode. And make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe.
0: Until next time.